Our reading this morning can be found on page 64 of your Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Helen's heard the service sermon once this morning, so she can't face it a second time. <laughs> She's running off. She's leading at St. George's this morning. Shall we pray? Oh, Father God, I, I, I pray that each one of us will have a heart and a mind that's open to hear and receive whatever you want to tell us. And when you challenge us, may we be willing to respond in obedience. Oh, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, yes, yes, I'm going to focus this morning on the baptism of Jesus uh, and I'm going to look really at the whole area of, of, of baptism and um, you know, what, what it's all about in some ways uh, and what happens in baptism. Now, as far as we're concerned with Jesus' baptism, this was the critical moment when his ministry really got going. And it's recorded not only by, by Luke, but Matthew and Mark do so. And I think in many ways that underlines and emphasizes the high point which marked this formal beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And, you know, there's something about this whole event uh, that carries the weight of what I would call a long-awaited, dramatic stage production. You know, the principal character has been waiting in the wings and the packed audience is there buzzing with expectancy. <gasps> What's going to happen? And Jesus has been quietly waiting in the obscure wings of his Nazareth home. And now the moment has arrived. Wow. Enter Jesus onto center stage. And all eyes on him. Can you think back to that occasion? Just all, everybody watching. Oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? This was, in a way, his debut. And it had to be highly significant. It had to be what I would call a spiritual high, uh, and which just launched him upon the world's stage 
with confidence and with authority. And you know, God's timing here, as it always is, was perfect, wasn't it? The unthinkable was already taking place. There were Jews in their hundreds, indeed their thousands, who were taking this unprecedented step of following John the Baptist into the waters of the Jordan. They were confessing national sins. They were confessing personal sins. They were calling on God for his cleansing. And they were asking him to make them fit for his kingdom. And you know, there hadn't been uh, a national turning such as this uh, towards God since the days of Ezra. How many years before was that? Some 500 years before. Nothing like this had happened. And moreover, Jews did not submit themselves to baptism. They knew about baptism and they used baptism, but they only used it for proselytes, for those who were newly converted to the faith. Uh, It was obvious to them that the sin-stained, polluted proselyte needed baptism. But no Jew ever conceived that he, a member of the chosen people, a son of Abraham, assured of God's salvation, was in that category of needing baptism. Baptism was for sinners. And Jews didn't believe that they were sinners, cut off or shut shut out from God in any way. So Jesus comes now at that very moment of unique national movement of penitence and search for God. You see, the time was ripe and Jesus came, it must have been some 60 miles uh, to join others in the waters of baptism. Now, baptism is extremely rich in significance and Jesus, the sinless, the sinless son of God, identifies himself fully with those he'd come to save. And you know, he was going to identify himself totally with every part of human life. And and at the end of his ministry, as we know, in that great commission, he urged baptism on all his followers. And here at the very outset, he sets an example for them to follow. Of course, in our tradition uh, here, we think of baptism in an infant setting. Then, of course, it was adult baptism, as is the case in uh, some other churches here in the island, and here too, for those who so choose. But there are five important strands that run through Christian baptism, and they all stem from the baptism of Jesus Let's look just for a few moments at those five issues that are so significant. The first one of them is repentance. How how would you describe repentance? You know, it's the key, isn't it? For me, at least as I see it, it's the key that so often just opens the door to Jesus' saving grace. It's that act of becoming aware of one's own sins of acknowledging that one is truly a sinner. It's an ugly word, isn't it? There's so many people in this day and age who don't want to use that word or be in any way associated with it. A sinner? Me? No. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a, I, I don't, you know, do awful things like that. I'm not a sinner. 
But what is sin? I, I think I've mentioned this before. I, I remember at um, uh, a Wednesday morning Holy Communions many, many years ago now, I think it was in John Harkin's day, when uh, before uh, we had the confession, uh, he said, just a moment before we confess, let's just be quiet. Let's just think about those things where we've sinned in this last week. And we want to say sorry to God about them. And one dear lady who was there, she put her hand up and she said, oh, but Rector, at our age, we don't sin. You know, what is sin? Are we always aware of what our sins are? You know, I don't have to go far short. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Stop, Lord, that's enough. I don't. Do we, all of us, with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength? You know, just to start off with, so much more. But when we acknowledge our sin, and the sinner comes in repentance, he comes in confession, he comes sorrowful for the many areas of omission, and it may well be, and those of commission too, that have been wrong in attitude, in thought, in word, in deed. And of course, true repentance says, not only just I'm sorry, it also says I don't intend to go down that road again. That is sincere, genuine repentance. And of course, such repentance brings about the next stage, which is forgiveness. What does John tell us in his letter? He says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did I praise God for forgiveness almost more than for anything else? What a joy, what a release, what a burden lifted to know that the slate has been wiped clean, no matter how awful the sin may have been. God has forgiven, God has forgotten, and I need no longer carry any guilt. Is that what forgiveness means to you? And then God, in his love and mercy and generosity, goes that extra mile, cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes the sinner righteous. Yes. What did he say elsewhere about righteousness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, that quality of life which is reflected in total consecration and that ongoing desire for holiness and characterized by obedience and service to Christ. Righteousness, being in that right relationship with God, being right with him, so that we can enjoy that full father-son, father-daughter relationship. He's the perfect father. You may have good memories of your dad or bad memories, we're not talking about that sort of, we're talking about a relationship with a perfect dad who loves each one of us dearly and wants us to know that love and to come close to him and to be so right with him that we know it and experience it and are aware of it. And notice how next comes 
after that repentance, after that forgiveness, after that righteousness, comes that mark of sonship. And that comes through so clearly in Jesus' bap- baptism, daughtership, if you'd rather, in this day of where we're so subtle about genders. You know, to be a servant in the household entitled the individual to certain rights and privileges, but he could never enjoy the position and status of a son in the family. You know, and as we journey through life, we'll have times when perhaps we've, we, we set aside our, our, our father-sonship relationship. We wander away from God. We wander away from, from our dad. But when we come back to our Heavenly Father, no matter how far we may have strayed, we're received just with those open arms of welcome. And we're restored to that place of honor as sons and daughters. I'm his son. I'm in that relationship. My dad. And how we need to appreciate fully that as we are sons and daughters, God has also made us co-heirs with Christ. Paul affirms this to us, doesn't he, in his letter to the, uh, the Galatians. We're adopted into God's family and we receive that rich inheritance that the Father wills to his son, Jesus. Yes, one stage further. And in baptism, we have that pledge of the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus was baptized, heaven opened. Rosemary read it to us a moment ago. Heaven opened and the Spirit of God descended. At the first Pentecost, the crowds wanted to know what they had to do to be like Peter and John and the others. And Luke records Peter's reply when he says, Repent and be baptized. That's what you've got to do. Every one of you, do so in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that promise is for you and for your children and for all that are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And God made this evident, didn't he, at Jesus' baptism, when the heavens opened and the Spirit came. And he's kept that promise of that gift for all subsequent generations since that early Pentecost. And what he's promised has an ongoing guarantee. Repentance, forgiveness, righteousness, sonship, and that gift of the Holy Spirit. The five key issues in baptism, the hallmarks, if you like, of baptism. And how Jesus recognized that these had to be effectively in place at this, the launching pad for his ministry so that he could set out confidently to carry out his father's will. Most of us will not remember our own baptism. And how many of you do? Anybody remember your baptism? Oh, some do. Um, mine, the onus was on my parents and godparents. The personal decision for me to uh, accept Jesus as Lord and Savior came at confirmation. And I suspect maybe true for others here today. But I wonder when we look back, for those who do remember their, their baptism, 
or my, for me, my confirmation, where there was a moment when we repented. Do you remember repenting? Do you remember that sense of being forgiven? Do you remember being made righteous? Do you remember being adopted as a son or daughter? Remember being empowered by the Holy Spirit? I certainly can't. I can't recall that. You know, because all of that is so life-transforming. It didn't happen to me then. I was a work in progress. I still am. God hasn't finished with me yet. It's been at different stages of life that when in God's grace that I've known them as realities and ongoing realities in my own life. Don't know about you. But sometimes good, as I was looking at this, I thought I need to look, I need to look back. I need to think back how true was this or how relevant was it to me at the time because that's what baptism is about. Well, as Christians, uh, let's move on. As Christians, you know, as part of the, the body of Christ here in his church in St. Juan, yes, part of the body of Christ here in the church in St. Juan's, we all have a part to play. We all have a role in ministry. You sure? You read 1 Corinthians 12 if you're in any doubt. It's pretty clear, isn't it? That we all have something to do. There's a role for each and every one of us. And this applies to us whether we're 9, 19 or 90. But do we each of us know what our role is? You know, Jesus knew what he had to do. Pretty clear. And when he was on that launching pad at his baptism, he knew what God had set out for him to do. And away he went to do it. Do we believe that God has plans for each of us and that he wants to use us so that he can achieve his purposes through us? Do we believe that? I find that very challenging. But God wants to use each one of us here so that he can achieve his purposes through us. Well, perhaps we've never really thought about that very seriously. Maybe, oh, maybe we are already playing our part and all seems to be going well. Or perhaps you're doing your bit already. You may have lost, I don't know, a bit of your initial commitment and enthusiasm. You may be feeling a bit tired and weary. But whatever our situation, you know, if we truly want to follow Christ, you know, we're embarking, we're only on the second Sunday of a new year. So we embark on this new year. Do you know, it's right and appropriate that we should be committing ourselves afresh to him and saying we're willing to be used by you, Lord, as you choose. 
You know, in my Bible reading this week, we've been looking at Paul on the Damascus Road. And the moment he knew that Jesus was Lord and that Jesus was his Lord, he turned over the reins of his life to him and he asked him the question, Lord, what must I do? What do you want me to do? What must I do? And you know, if Jesus is indeed my Lord, then I want to know his way. I want to know what his will for me is, and I need the grace to respond in obedience and trust. And you know, I'm going to point the finger at you, because if you want God to use you this year, then you, like me, need to know what he wants you to do. And I believe that we may have to do it more than once. We may have to do it fresh. We may have done it already. We may want to keep on doing it until we really know. To get on that launching pad, as it were, of prayer. We can't go through the baptism process again. But you know those five steps, aren't they? Of just coming before the Lord and in quietness and stillness. Oh, well, we've had our confession already. Yes, I know. But what about me simply and me personally? What do I really want to say sorry to him for? What are those things that are still holding me back in some ways that I need to get rid of? And just to welcome God's forgiveness consciously and say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me for that. And just to know that he's declaring me righteous. You're back in a relationship fully with me now. You're my child. Just to sense him saying, you are my beloved child. And then just to have an open heart, an open mind, an open life, just to receive more, more, more of his Holy Spirit, his power, his gifting, his love, his guidance. And as we open our lives to him, Lord, how do you want to use me? I think I just want to stop there. Let's just have a few minutes now. You may not want to do this. Let's just have a few minutes now when, in the quietness, in the stillness, we just have a chat with the Lord. Just tell him what we're sorry about. Just to sense and to know his forgiveness. Just to accept that statement, you're now righteous. You're my son. You're my daughter. This is how I want to use you. Receive more of me.
Let's just be quiet now. Let's just pray wherever we are.